In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, poet, historian, philosopher, educator, and peace officer for the Council of British Druid Orders. Thomas recounts an unusual upbringing, a love affair with classics and poetry, and dropping out of school at 15 to pursue philosophical inquiry. We learn of Thomas's immersion in the study of the world's religious and mystical traditions, and his early tantric and druidic initiations. Thomas discusses the ancient Greek mystery schools, the cultural consequences of their closure, and what it would take to revive them in the world today. Thomas reflects his time as a celibate, why every student of the mysteries should have a brahmacharya phase, and why a sense of duty and civic responsibility eventually saw him marry and start a family. Thomas also talks about reconciling the schools of Islam, compares Eastern and Western enlightenments, and reveals the inspiration behind his relentless intellectual curiosity. So without further ado, Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern. Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, welcome to the podcast. Greetings, hi, nice, nice of you to have me. So you have had a really rather remarkable life, and both in terms of your extensive uh, academic um, studies and also your extensive experience as a practitioner of world religions, living and dead. But I'm wondering, before we get to that, if we could start a little earlier. I'm curious about your upbringing, actually. Where, where were you educated and what was, what was the um, circumstances of your childhood? Right. OK, thanks. Yeah. Um, well, I was born in Montreal in Canada. Uh, my earliest memories, very fond memories of Montreal. First time I saw snow. Um, we, I was part of a happy family, you know, I had an elder brother and sister, two loving, amazing parents. My dad ran the Canadian National Railways personnel division. He was a management expert. My mother was a kind of housewife come scholar and Latin teacher. So they were sort of intellectual family. Uh, Canada was, they were at the hub of the Montreal intelligentsia where Justin Trudeau comes from place called Westmount, which is the sort of intellectual hub of Montreal. Um, they were peace activists. My parents were both uh, had met in London during the Blitz in the 40s in the war. They saw that the end of the war would lead to world peace. They were visionaries. They supported Henry Wallace in the campaign to succeed as president after Roosevelt. They were very much fans of Roosevelt. So they were on the left politically. You know, as were as were the the team that won World War Two. They supported UNESCO, and they thought the duty of intellectuals was to like help win the peace. They were very aghast at the beginning of the Cold War and the um, onset of McCarthyism. And anybody to the left of Genghis Khan was then tarnished as a communist. And so, you know, <clears throat> I I was born into this this um, this this atmosphere. Um, they moved back, we moved back as a family to, to Brighton in Sussex because my father thought he ought to go back to England and Britain and save British industry from its self-destruction in the early 60s. It was all left versus right, you know, Labour versus Tories and the country wasn't moving forward at all. He was, he'd invented a thing called management by objectives, which was a way of getting everyone in a company working together. Anyway, um, so my, my kind of memories of crossing the Atlantic, coming to Brighton, I went as, um, I, I was educated in the local primary school in Brighton, an Anglican school. 
uh, in Kemp Town called St. Mark's. Then I went to Brighton College, which is a very good school, like a kind of little eaten by the sea. To the junior school, we did Latin. I discovered the classics. My mother was a scholar from the University of London in the 30s, and I was brought up with, with the Greek and Roman classics. You know, I kind of read them for bedtime reading, the Norse myths. She was from Yorkshire. And I lived in a world that, that I suppose anyone since the fall of the Roman Empire would have felt comfortable with. My heroes were Theseus and um, Thor and, you know, like they were all swimming around my head. So I read loads of historical fiction as a boy. Um, and I, I realized early on the imagination is the secret of life. Um, and discovered poetry quite early. And, and by the time I was sort of mid, mid to late teens, I was quite serious about becoming a poet. You know, I was convinced that was the path for me. And I started writing in my early teens and some of those poems looking back, you know, are pretty, they were pretty precocious is all I can say. My teachers would, would read my stuff and say, look, how, you didn't write this, how's that possible? You know, I was like 14. <laughs> and in, in uh, from the age of 13, 14, my mother sent me to Paris every Easter to learn French. She was herself a French teacher. And I was raised to be bilingual, which is how come I'm now living in France? I speak the language, I love the culture, I know the French way of thinking. And I learned it walking around the streets of Paris, age 12, 13, 14, fancying myself as, as, as a new Rambo, you know, writing poetry. <laughs> um, okay, long story short, I, I dropped out of school at the age of 15 because I found the curriculum totally banal and boring. I was at a thing called Brighton Grammar School by then. And it was like a sort of polite game in ignorance. All the questions I asked the physics teacher, like what actually is gravity? Or, you know, where does it come from? He couldn't explain. He would, he would just like say, no, I don't know. Just learn the bloody formula, Thomas, you know. And that wasn't good enough for me. Um, so anyway, I dropped out to become a poet at the age of 15. You could still do that in those days. And I went, I hitched around England. This is in the early 70s. Uh, doing poetry readings. I worked, oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist at that time. That was the only profession I thought was worthy. And I did a few digs and stuff. Anyway, I then, dis I then discovered philosophy by going back to Brighton and doing an A-level in ancient history and English, I got enough A-levels to get to university with private tutors. Um, the schools were hopeless, but I was, I'm very, very self-disciplined at study. You know, it's not like I don't want to study. It's just, I need, I, I actually really want to study. And I found schools were just giving you, spoon feeding you and telling you to learn stuff, which wasn't education at all. So, um, Anyway, I did an ancient history A-level, which was amazing. I loved it, which introduced me to ancient Greek and Roman history and culture and literature. And I decided that I want to be a philosopher. I discovered this thing called philosophy, which I hadn't been told about in school. Nobody mentioned this secret word. And I, the penny dropped, like, what, Socrates? Well, isn't he like me? I mean, aren't I one of those, you know? so. About the age of 17, 18, I decided to go to university and read philosophy. And um, I got a place at Bristol 
And I went with all the enthusiasm and excitement of a young little novice setting out for, you know, his spiritual journey. En route, I'd fallen in love and had a few pretty awesome experiences, you know, that um, opened my eyes as to the bigger picture of the cosmos um, with a woman who just got back from Peru and just been off learning the Incan mysteries. And I, I would say she was like a tantric initiatress of mine. Um, I, I've been very fortunate and blessed in that respect. Anyway, we went to Bristol together and I, um, I settled down thinking I was gonna have a great experience for three years doing this degree. But what I realized very soon into the course was that Bristol University Department was run by logical positivists who dismissed every single thing I was interested in as so much nonsense. It was run by academics that, you know, like we're all skeptical. None of them accepted spirituality in any way, shape or form. And they were very much on the materialist wing of intellectual, you know, um, a stranglehold over British academia. And foolishly, with hindsight, arguably, I don't know, instead of staying and fighting my corner and, and you know, quoting Hegel at them and coming out as an idealist, I decided to resign from the university after one year. I just thought, I, th I thought this is pointless. Every time I opened my mouth, I was getting shouted down, you know, um, and quoted A.J. Eyre at and, and Wittgenstein. So I walked with my, um, well, I just had a sleeping bag and knapsack across Stonehenge, across Salisbury Plain to Stonehenge from Bristol. And this was my first sort of Druid initiation, if you want. I'd been studying Buddhism experientially with my girlfriend. I'd, I'd um, exper experimented with LSD with her supervision, um, which was a pretty mind blowing experience. And I just felt that the conventional academia couldn't explain the experiences I was having, couldn't, hadn't got a clue. I discovered there was a thing called California, which, which people were beginning to kind of explain those types of things. So I, I read Alan Watts and, you know, Ram Dass and all that lot um, <clears throat> and felt kindred to them. I felt these people are actually talking my language, you know. So I, that's why I dropped out of university because they were like, I thought 30 or 40 years behind the times you know um okay so then i then i um i went i chose then to return to my birth country canada for four years and i did an intensive study self-taught at the university of calgary because i wanted to combine the kind of spiritual experiences i've been having make sense of them but also understand like the history and traditions of of this planet's spiritual seekers. Because I, you know, I realize I'm not the first guy on the block. There are all these amazing intellectuals and, and thinkers. So I, I went on a long retreat for four years. I lived in a caravan, totally up in the mountains outside Calgary. I worked very, very hard, um, just in a normal mundane job, um, managing a bookshop, and then um, working in a hospital for veteran soldiers in Calgary three years which was like another initiation into the stupidity of war and all that time I was studying the world's spiritual literature trying to make sense of existence and that's the first time I ever read through the world's spiritual texts I read the bible for the first time in depth with commentaries I taught myself ancient greek to understand it in greek 
I, I read the entire um, Zoroastrian scriptures, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the, um, you know, the Jewish, the Torah, discovered the Kabbalah, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the whole gamut. And, um, and then it, by then it was like, I was what, 23, 24. And I said, well, what, what should I do now? You know, like I, I realized there's a unity behind these external religious differentiations. And, you know, I kind of looked at a world map. I'd saved up loads of money and I thought, well, where can I best be of service to this planet, you know? And I was shown somewhat reluctantly, I, I had to go back to London. And I thought, for God's sake, you know, why London? But because it was a world communication center and it was a hub of intellectual life, it was a world power and all that. So I went to London in 1981-2 and launched a group called Philosophers and Historians of Peace. I took the view that I'd spent all these years studying the unity behind religions. Now I wanted to manifest it in some way that was meaningful. Because that was, the, that was the, the height of the Cold War. The West had nuclear weapons pointing at the Russian sphere, the communist sphere, and vice versa. And we were sort of poised a few minutes away from Armageddon. So I launched this group um, to try and stop that happening. You know, it's a preventative medical initiative. I, I call myself a, a medical philosopher. You know, to me, war and conflict is a medical problem, as I'd experienced in the hospital nursing these soldiers. So that's why I came back to Britain. And um, and then I launched, I, I then, I did a degree, a second degree in this time in history. I'd done enough philosophy till it was coming out of my ears and religious studies, but I wanted to learn the details of, of world history, you know. So I studied at the University of London, courses on world history, um, ending specializing in the study of the Cold War at the LSE and the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Um, and the year I, well, just after I graduated, I got a job to set up a peace studies institute at the University of London. Um, I was invited to Moscow in 1990 as coordinator of philosophers of peace in Europe. And the Russians were quite into peace. This was just the last days of Gorbachev. They thought, okay, the Cold War's over. We're gonna have a treaty of Paris. We're gonna make peace. Let's, let's enjoy the peace dividend. It was quite an optimistic time, 1990. And um, yeah, so, so that's really how I got to set up my Peace Studies Institute, uh, which I still run. Okay, so that's a, that's a kind of potted history of my first like 25 years or whatever. Um, hope that's, I hope that's okay. Mm, yeah, very interesting indeed. Perhaps I'll ask you some questions about what you've already said. Sure. I'm curious, you mentioned this uh, very uh, significant romantic relationship. And also at that time, you were experimenting with, with LSD and having all kinds of transpersonal experiences uh, or spiritual experiences. What were those spiritual experiences? Can you recall any any of the significant ones? <laughs> what matter they were? Sure. Um, yes, I mean, I... I only took LSD twice. I think these are mysteries. They don't need to be repeated again and again. I took it extremely seriously. My girlfriend was an amazing woman, actually. She's unfortunately dead now. 
um, she'd, she'd experimented before and we were reading Timothy Leary and all that stuff, Tibetan Book of the Dead. So we painted the, the floor of our flat in Bristol white, set out a hundred tea candles in a circle and, and waited for God to appear. Um, and God turned up. I mean, I can't, uh, uh, what happened was, um, we were talking a lot about life, like you and I are right now, but sort of deeper and more intimately. And after about half an hour, I noticed her lips weren't moving. That was the first sign something weird's going on. <laughs> we were having this intense conversation completely telepathically, right? Um, it just pure, pure mind to mind, right? And, um, and then there followed some other experiences, which, which I've written about in my autobiography. I'm not gonna, I won't go into the whole, the whole story, but just enough kind of spiritual confirmation that there's more to life than meets the eye. And what I've read since about the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, where they also use psychedelics, it, you only went to them like twice if you're a good Athenian or Greek citizen. And it, it's like literally going to the, um, to have a glimpse of the heaven worlds, if you want. Um, you know, the soul, I mean, the word psychedelic means a soul revelation. So it's like a soul revelation. And it was a confirmation of everything that I'd been striving towards. Um, yeah. Um, but I didn't, I didn't need to repeat it. I did, I'm not one of those people that used to do LSD at parties. I, I, I think that's wrong. I think, I think these drugs should be legalized under license, like with alcohol, but you should get like a warning packet and you, you're only allowed them a couple of times. I don't know quite how you do that. Um, I, I think that they should be available to, to young seekers like I was back then, um, like the mysteries. In fact, I think we should reestablish the Eleusinian mysteries outside Athens. The closure of the mysteries by the Christian fanatical emperors was a, was a spiritual error, I believe, which has caused a lot of problems since. Um, anyway, there we are. I hope that's okay. Yeah, very interesting. I've heard you talk about that elsewhere and write about that. Um, you've called for a sort of reopening of the Eleusian mysteries and uh, other, other mystery traditions. Yeah. I'm wondering how you envisage that happening, uh, given that it's, we could say, an extinct lineage in in this if rather than say a living lineage how would you reconstruct that do we know enough about what's going on there of course by definition it's 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 a bit mysterious and also what do you think with the uh, consequences of you mentioned there are some problems what are the what were the consequences do you think of the closing of those uh, mystery schools gosh okay that's a lot of questions all in one they're all very important um Yes, I think the mysteries were, were universal. They were pan-national. Um, the Eleusinian mysteries were open to any person in the whole Hellenistic world and Rome, later joined in the party a bit late. Um, I think the lineages are still living. I, I don't think they're dead. I think there's enough knowledge has come down. I think they live on in things like Freemasonry and certain esoteric lineages that are still active and have been holding some of that light. Um, and, and I've been working today on the mysteries of Mithras, which were incredibly important, um, slightly later in the time of the Roman Empire and its heyday. There were hundreds of Mithraea all over 
from Hadrian's Wall in, in Scotland right across to Syria. Um, and those were another form of the mysteries um, to do with Mithras. And we know quite a lot about that from a great scholar called Franz Cumor and others who, who was a Freemason as well. Um, and then there's the Druid mysteries, which I've also been engaged a lot in. I'm in a sort of initiate in the Druid lineages. And they also carry a lot of this light and they haven't been destroyed. They survived when Christianization, enforced Christianization was happening because of the Roman Imperium. Um, under Theodosius, they closed the mysteries of Eleusis and he, um, he also shut down the Mithraic initiations and so on and closed the academy in Athens. You see, I'm one of those academics that believes proper academic life is also a series of initiations. There was a philosopher at the University of London, Evie Peters, who said, uh, sorry, R.S. Peters, who said education is initiation. And I would agree with him, you know. Um, but most academics don't let on about that secret. You know, they keep it purely at the head level of, of sort of rational intellect. You, you have to go beyond that to the transpersonal intellect, the divine intellect. Now, the greatest philosophers of Neo-Hellenism and the Neoplatonic tradition like Plotinus, Iamblichus, and back to Plato, they all knew this, you know. We've almost forgotten it. And, and we're in danger in, in the 21st century of, of thinking that all knowledge is a sort of robotic accountancy. <coughs> We've lost inspiration and genius and enlightenment, actually. Because the, the Buddhist mysteries, obviously, they're, they're interconnected here. Um, and, the, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in India going and sitting at the feet of different lineage holders. Um, there's a Western form of enlightenment and an Eastern one. And I'm very interested in, in combining and synthesizing them. Um, how can we do it? Well, Kant said, dare to be wise, sapere aude. Um, you know, we have to just have the courage to say what we know and not be dumbed down by the kind of mob that, that work on, you know, just um, collective herd ignorance at, at suppressing knowledge and suppressing insight. Um, yes. And that doesn't mean I'm just an elitist. No, I'm a democratic elitist. I want the insights of enlightenment to get out to the masses. Um, you know, so I did study the whole Russian tradition and my, I did a PhD eventually on the history of the Cold War. And I tried to see the best bits about the Russian Soviet position and the best bits about the West and tried to synthesize them. And I, I think the best bit about the Russian Soviet thing was like equality, um, <clears throat> egalitarianism, insight, education, the highest forms of literacy, free education for everyone up to university, free nursery places, no, no unemployment, no poverty, everyone had a home, you know, lots of stuff. Like, we've gone backwards since then. Um, but, you know, the best bit about the West was the individualism, the, the entrepreneurial spirit, the get up and do it now type thing. Um, I don't see why we can't combine the two, you know. Um, that, so that's kind of what I've been working on philosophically, amongst many other things. Yeah, that's actually something I'd like to talk to you about, especially in the context of your paper, Enlightenments with ah. Ness. Uh, but, but a bit later, yeah, I'd like yeah. to ask you about that. But I'm curious, on this topic of mystery schools, 
if we were to put one together, what would the key elements be? Evidently, there needs to be some means of inducing some altered state that can be guided, presumably, or steered somehow yeah. um, towards so, some some sort of towards something somehow. Mm -hmm. And that's the bit that I'm a little more foggy on. What would the necessary components, do you think, be for a mystery school? What do we need <laughs> to have? Gosh, well, that's a fun question. Um, let me can I just um, <clears throat> can I just add the other mystery schools that are still going are the runic ones. I mean, you call yourself Guru Viking, which is such a cool name. I mean, I've also studied a lot at the feet of Odin and Thor and the, the runic traditions. They're also a still living tradition um, in Norway. I've been to Scandinavia many times. Um, and, and they also have their own wisdom, right? Um, and I've written a book called The Kabbalah Runes, integrating the Kabbalistic lineages, which are also still alive, with the runic lineages. I think they go back to a common root which was the seeing of, of, of sound as something, um, something cosmic that is creative in its own right. So, so when God creates the world it, through sound, what's going on? Well, I think I've tried to crack that, and that's what I call the Kabbalah runes. It's the sonic landscape of the interior psyche of the collective unconscious. And you can map it. You can see that the people that were inventing the runes, let's call them Odin, it's a lineage, right? were having these kind of experiences like I did, seeing into the, you know, like the coding behind existence. The people that wrote, the, uh, invented the Kabbalah, let's call it Abraham, Jacob and Moses, I think they were all Kabbalistic lineage holders. Um, they were seeing the same thing, but because one of them spoke a Semitic language, you know, Hebrew, it came out in that form. Whereas the Norse people were, um, you know, we're doing it in their Indo-European Scandinavian languages, but it's the same sounds ultimately. So what would be in the mystery school? Well, I, you see, I'm like Plato. I would say, don't come here unless you also done some academic training, unless you've studied languages, mathematics, history, philosophy, geometry, you know, you need the basic groundings in, in geography and world. So you need, I would say my mystery school, you should have a degree at least first, some kind of lineage of, of, of knowledge. You see, to me, the mysteries are, um, are revealed in every branch of knowledge. So if you're a geographer or a historian or a, a physicist or a linguist, I think there's a transpersonal dimension to that waiting to be explored. The mysteries are when you, when you get to the transpersonal dimension of whatever knowledge you have, um, they're revealed to you. And then you can take that knowledge field on a bit further, right? Um, so for instance, can I just ask you what, I mean, have you done a degree? Did you do an academic training of any kind? I trained in music actually. Okay, right. Well, there's a brilliant example. So you understand music and how it works. You studied presumably different composers and schools of music and all that. Well, there's a whole dimension of transpersonal, um, you know, inspiration in music. Um, I've got books here in my music library about how some of the great composers of history were very, very spiritual, Beethoven, whatever. Um, and they could hear the music ineffably, you know. So what's that? What's going on? You know, um, there's a whole area of transpersonal musicology that hasn't yet been fully developed. So by the way, there should be music in the mystery schools. 
there, there always were. Um, the mysteries were a sort of partly a combination of performance arts. At Eleusis, we know there was a kind of performance um, involving music, chant, bit of acting and drama. They enacted the role of the gods and goddesses, Demeter and um, Persephone was the story going at Eleusis. Um, and the kind of death and rebirth, you know, going down into death. Um, and then there was a pageant uh, to get there. You went on a big procession. We know the mysteries of Isis in Egypt were similar. They had all those elements. Um, so it was like it was like a sort of mm. and and also the theatre grew out of this. I mean, in the Greek mystery school, um, the worship of Dionysus was very important. The Dionysian mysteries—that's a whole other thing um, connected to the Orphic mysteries—and they involve theater. I mean, theater came out of the ritual processions in honor of Dionysus, who was the god of ecstasy. Um, and what happened was the actor, it started out like the priest would play act being the god or goddess. And that was going on in Babylon, in Phoenicia. It was a whole ritual thing. You dressed up and did the god and goddess thing. Um, well, in Athens, they took it a bit further. They said, we'll write the script and we'll call it theater you know, and we'll put in a plot line and we'll have humans interacting with the gods. So I think, I mean, life itself is the mystery school, actually, you know, uh, it'd be very presumptuous of me to say, <laughs> you know, like we're all scripting our own mystery drama, aren't we? Yes, indeed, fabulous. When you're, you're talking here and I, so, so many possible lines of inquiry are springing from everything you're saying. <laughs> it's a sort of, uh, so witnessing the death of a hundred questions, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Can I share a little? I'll share a little thing about that. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'm I'm a great lover of the Kabbalah, and I spent you know a long time studying it and practicing and meeting Kabbalists and going to workshops and stuff. And I've been to Israel and New York, and I've you know, I've I've sort of looked into it in great depth. And I discovered a wonderful quote by Isaac Luria, who. Um, is one of the great Kabbalists, I think, and philosophers as well. Um, and um, he was asked once, why don't you write a book, Isaac? He, he only taught orally and his students wrote stuff down. He never wrote a book. And they asked him why and he said, the trouble is whenever I open my mouth, whole streams of stuff come out. I never know what's coming next, but it's like all of them, it's like goes on for pages. How can I possibly write all that down? You know, <laughs> and I knew when I read that, I thought this guy is like my cousin spiritually, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's the Isaac Luria syndrome, I'm afraid. No, it's, it's fantastic. Mm. Um, when you uh, were at Calgary doing that three, three and a half years of intense study. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you've said about that time, two things that I thought were very interesting. First of all, that it was a sort of brahmacharya time. Mm. And that seems interesting, contrasting this potent relationship that you were having in the UK. And also, you said that at the end of that, you reached a kind of philosophical enlightenment. So I'm wondering if you could comment on those two on those two things, the significance of this brahmacharya phase, mm. if you like, and also what you meant by this philosophical enlightenment. Yes, I think it is important to have a brahmacharya phase in one's life. If you're a serious student of the mysteries, you you know, you've got to abstain from the the um, the whole erotic enchantment thing, which is hugely time consuming and 
you know, it takes over one's mind. I mean, it's amazing and wonderful. We all love it. But but if you're going to do serious study, you have to you have to put that on hold for a bit. So I made a conscious decision to like be be abstentious and celibate for that four year period. Um, and that was one of the most intensive intellectual periods of my life, you know. Um, and I think it's, I mean, I had read all, you know, I was reading the Upanishads and, and that was the lineage I was coming from. I'd, I'd you know, been practicing yoga as well by then. And um, I think they, they did it wisely. They, they insisted that the serious yogis, that their students should be celibate, you know, at least for the initial stages of their training. Um, and then later on, I, when I came back to London, I made a conscious contrary decision which was to have a family and children because I felt that one has a duty also to society and if all the enlightened sages went off and lived in caves and were celibate then you know the planet would soon get in the hands of complete idiots um and uh unfortunately that seems to be what's happening in a lot of, lot of places um philosophical enlightenment I what I mean by that by the way I read the Quran then for the first time all the way through and I did all these things thoroughly so I did it with notes with maps with commentaries and all that and I realized that all these great texts of humanity I also got up to Hegel and Marx I read Kant I read um, you know the great western philosophical traditions I also read Plato right through for the first time um, and Aristotle and I loved them all you know um, I remember reading Homer and 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 um, Virgil. So I I designed this curriculum course, and at the end of it, I I didn't just know that there's a unity underlying it all, but I could prove it intellectually, rationally, and philosophically. I could have a conversation with a Muslim, with a Sikh, with a Hindu, with a Buddhist, with a Marxist, with a, a Kantian, with a Hegelian, and I could explain to them where their bit fits into the bigger picture. That, that was the knowledge I'd been looking for. And it, I couldn't learn that in university. There, there were no courses, and there's still hardly any, where you can do the kind of course I did, which was a crash course in world spirituality and philosophy. I don't think there's, I mean, Harvard, possibly, Cambridge, maybe. There's very few centers where you could do a course, certainly not at undergraduate level, with as much breadth as I'd I had to do it myself, you know. Um, and philosophical enlightenment is is that realization um, of that trans transcendental unity. It's Fritjof Schuon, who you probably know about, the Sufi guy, talks about the transcendental unity of all religions. Uh, he he was a great Sufi in the twentieth century, and um, you know, and obviously Ken Wilber talks it about as well. And so I I worked that out myself um, during that four-year period in in Canada yeah fabulous Koda on the mystery schools uh, I asked um in my barrage of questions what did you see the consequences of the closure of the mystery schools being you said that caused a lot of problems <laughs> uh, subsequently what do you think those hmm. problems are oh gosh how long have you got um it's a very good question um I've coined the word Sophia phobia which I don't know if you've come across or yeah. realize that. It means the fear of wisdom. 
I think that power structures, um, I don't care whether they're dressed in some theocratic jargon like a Muslim or Christian state or something or Jewish or whatever. If, if they're afraid of wisdom being out in the hands of ordinary people, they will try and clamp down on diversity of views, diversity of opinion, and they will insist there's only this way of doing uh, spiritual work. This is orthodoxy. Anything outside that is heresy. And we've had versions of this going on in Islam, in Judaism even, in um, certainly in Christianity. And most, um, what, what, what goes wrong when that happens is freedom of thought stops, freedom of inquiry stops. You cannot do proper academic work then. So you, you know, what, what these Christian emperors did is they had a tiny bit of the mysteries. I mean, Christianity is a valid path. It's a wonderful thing. In, in the right dosage, <clears throat> you know, the Trinity is an interesting concept. It, it grew out of the Celtic Druidical love of threesome as an as a ontological manifestation of, of reality, which you find in Hinduism as well. Um, obviously, the incarnational revelatory, <clears throat> you know, download that Christ represented was, was enormous. It was an existential revelation for people. And, and so they divinized him and said, well, he's the son of God, you know. But that concept is, was itself rooted in Hellenism. There'd been a whole series of sons of God before Christ came on the scene. Dionysus was the son of God. Hercules was the son of God. Um, even Alexander the Great was the son of God. The, the um, oasis at um, um, Siwa told him that in an oracle. Um, I mean, anybody who was anybody was the son of God. It was just a Greek way of saying that's that's quite an amazing chap. And you could be daughters of God, the goddess as well. Um, so there was nothing new about that. The, the trouble was the, the, the church fell into the hands of literalists and exoteric Christians who took that concept literally and, and invented this whole the only son of God concept, which is a ridiculous thing. It's like saying the only glass of water or something. I mean... I mean, come on, you know, we live in a vast universe. There are many sons and daughters of God on many different star worlds. And it's time we woke up our little humanity project. But no, they clamped down on all this and they invented this thing called heresy. And they started killing people for it. I mean, the, even the devotees of Mithras were persecuted by the Christians for God's sake. I mean, Mithras was a cult that was around long before the Christians. And the whole idea of being a Christ or a Seoshant was actually a Persian Zoroastrian, a Mithraic concept. Uh, the three Magi come to the baby Jesus. And when Mithras was born, his birth from the rock was witnessed by shepherds. This is pre-Christian, right? His birthday was December the 25th. So, you know, you join the, join the pieces up. I mean, Christianity stole a lot of the mystery content of the mysteries, packaged it into a sort of imperial cult, which was good enough for most people, you know, but what they should never have done was try and silence the actual intellectual work that was going on. So for instance, one of the things they closed down at that time was the Delphic Games. I don't know if you've heard of the Delphic Games, Okay, so you've heard of the Olympic Games, obviously, everyone's heard of that. Well, 
in the classical world for a thousand years, the Delphic Games ran parallel to the Olympic Games. They took place in Delphi and they didn't celebrate the sports, but the intellectual work of humanity, the artistic and cultural work. So the great poets of the Hellenistic world, the artists, the painters, the dancers, the musicians, and the theatrical people all went to Delphi and performed. It was under the guise of Apollo and the Muses. And I'm actually the educational coordinator for the new Delphic Games. We've revived it. The Secretary General lives in Berlin. We've, we've done a few, it's ongoing. And we want to get it going again every four years, like in the old days. But guess what? The Christians shut it down. I mean, what, what's, what's wrong with poetry? You know, this is why in my life, the sort of poetic rebel of the 16 year old, I mean, in romantic uh, times, Keats, Shelley, they were the rebel heroes of, of the resistance against what Blake called the sort of, well, you know, the, the factories of capitalism churning out the, the soot and smoke in the name of profit. And you could add slavery into that and, you know, all that stuff. So, um, Anyway, I hope that answers your question. Certainly. You know, I was pondering uh, some of the streams that informed your thought and also the way in which you've pursued your work. One of the thoughts was your parents, George and Eileen Daffern, mm. who you've mentioned before, uh, really quite remarkable people. And in fact, on your channel, on your YouTube channel, which I'll link in the show notes, uh, there's a very uh, interesting interview you conducted with your mother. Hmm. actually very nice uh yeah she was well known peace activist yeah. uh, anti-nuclear uh, activist and so on and so forth and um uh, something else i think she was known for was a tremendous work ethic and also this uh, relentless belief that everyone can make a difference and everyone has potential and i think these themes seem to uh also carry through in your own work i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your parents' influence on you in the sense in, in the sense in which your, your character and your thought has expressed in your work. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, my mother was quite a formidable woman. Um, she was a teacher and um, a, a beautiful soul, actually. When, when she was dying at the age of 98 in, in hospital in Brighton, I went to her birth, her, her deathbed to say goodbye because I was living in Scotland. I, I, was, I knew I had to fly back the next day. She was literally dying and it'll be my last time I saw her. So I sat by the bed and I looked at this frail old lady who was tiny. She'd like shrunk in lying in the bed. I held her hand and squeezed it and she could squeeze back. So she was conscious still. And I had this vision. I saw my mother when she was a baby. I have photographs of her. She was born in 1914 on January the 1st. So that's before World War One like a totally different era, right? Um, I've got a picture of her as a baby in her christening gown. She was christened as an Anglican. Um, and, and then as a girl, she went to Skipton Grammar School, became head girl. Um, she came from a family that really um, emphasized education. Her father was a learned man in his own way. They were Baptists. On the father's side, the mother was Anglican. And they ensured that she got to university. So I then had pictures in my head of her um, as a slightly older girl and then in her university days. And then after university, she went round the world uh, on a sort of cruise tour, got a ship all the way through the Suez Canal to Australia. 
in those days of the British Empire, that's what one did. Agatha Christie did the same, for instance, same kind of era. And um, I've got all the photographs of her as a young, like 25, 26 year old on Australian sheep farms and things. Because her father used to go to Australia. He was a wool buyer from Yorkshire. And in the mills in Sutton, where they were from, they would import wool from Australia and turn it into suits and things. So, and then I've got photographs of later when she met my dad, fell in love. They, they eloped to, to America. Young sort of glamour couple, you know, really happy. Then settling down in Canada slightly later as a, as a young mum. And then all the later phases of her life as a young teacher, um, a slightly older peace campaigner, and then, you know, getting older and more wrinkly. And I sat there with all these images in my head. I saw them like in a movie. Um, and I said, which is the real mother, which is my mother here? Because I remembered her as this beautiful, glamorous lady that would kiss me to sleep at night, you know, like Proust. He has, he writes about that in his memoirs or his novel rather. And, and then she became obviously older. And, and I was told by spirit, she's all of them. She's the little baby. She's the young girl, the older girl, the young woman, the older woman, and, and then the great crone, you know, and she's all of them and none. And that was a real kind of insight that I was given there, that the essence of my mother was timeless and, and formless. Um, and it just takes these forms as we go through life. Anyway, that's, that's, I'm showing that vision, but to answer your, your question, I think, I think one of the most important influences my mother had on me was her belief in Marxism. When I used to go to her as a young teenager and say, what's the meaning of life? She'd say, go and read Karl Marx. Because to her, this meant a lot. During the war, she'd found in Marxism a, a kind of way to defeat fascism in her head. There, there, was, there was sort of drift towards fascism in the 30s in Britain and Europe as a whole. And she wasn't going to have any of it. What she found in Marxism was a belief in science. Um, and she was one of these people that got the left book club. She read all the Marxist scientists, people like J.D. Bernal, um, who was a great professor of chemistry. Um, and <clears throat> they believed that through scientific understanding, humanity can discover reality and then learn to shape it. Um, and this was quite a British socialist tradition. It was not, you know, it was, there's a lot of, in, there's an English socialist tradition that she comes from, if you want. Now, when we got down to debating, so the, the bit I found I couldn't swallow was the materialism at the heart of this Marxist worldview, you know. Um, so we, we, would, we would argue, I would say, well, what's ultimate truth? No, not what's the truth of matter, but what's ultimate, ultimate truth? Well, there isn't one, Thomas. Well, there's got to be. What do you mean there isn't one? You know, so we, so we would argue and disagree. What we agreed on was the need for peace. What we agreed on was that because the materialists of the world and the idealists of the world don't agree about ultimate reality, they shouldn't blow each other up. There can be a somewhere, a middle ground. And I think her influence on me was to make me go off in huge detail and explore both sides of the argument, right? Um, 
and you know i've i've read the marxist classics i've i've gone into that in huge detail including in in the history of russian philosophy particularly and and there's there's many interesting things in fact i just want to say that one thing it made me do when i did my degree at university i wrote a i wrote a series of papers called towards a history of the interrelations of marxism and esotericism i don't know if you've come across this or yep. worked out okay so what I did, I was at the School of Slavonic East European Studies, and I, I was doing European intellectual history, 19th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I wanted to trace Marxism back to its source, esoterically. And I, I was asking questions of my tutors, who were all expert historians on, on the history of ideas, history of Marxism. And I discovered that Marx came out of a milieu in France and to some extent in, in, well, in Europe generally, steeped in Freemasonry and steeped in esoteric thought movements. Like the guy that appointed him to be head of the International Working Man's Council, which was run out of London, was a 33rd degree Freemason in a French order of Memphis Misraim. They were all practicing occultists, right? These, these, people working for working class redemption and, and evolution were all, a lot of them Freemasons. For, in, for instance, the guy that introduced Marx and Engels to each other was a guy called Moses Hess, a Jewish guy that Sir Isaiah Berlin said was an absolute genius. I discovered him reading Sir Isaiah Berlin, who was a, a great intellectual historian at Oxford. Um, now, Moses Hess was a Freemason. He was Jewish, and he joined the Freemasonic Lodge in Paris. He wrote an amazing neo-Hegelian book about how, I mean, he was the first guy to say, I'm a communist. What he meant by that was, I believe in absolute love. I want to live in a world where love reigns supreme. I don't care what your color, your creed, your class, your religion is. We will live in a world of brotherhood and, and love. Now, he introduced Marx and Engels to each other because he thought, you two are both clever, you can do some work together. But unfortunately, as I discovered, the more I went into it, Marx had some personality problems. He couldn't work with other people unless they were like under his thumb. You know, Engels was fine because he, he gave him lots of dosh and would do what he wanted. But if you had the slightest bit of intellectual independence, you became an enemy to Marx. He was, he was a grumpy personality. And so, you know, that leads directly to Lenin and Stalin, who wouldn't work with the Mensheviks. In, I've just finished the biography of the young Stalin by um, a great British historian, um, uh, Montefiore. It's a masterpiece. And it tells you how, I mean, Stalin was a thug, a bandit. And he just, he didn't just not work with people. He had them liquidated, you know. But the roots of that are in Marx's intellectual arrogance um so and there was a bit of that in my mother i have to say <laughs> she was a wonderful woman i love her but i don't want to over romanticize her she she also had her ruthless streak and if you weren't in her team you know she would oppose you um so each generation we have to sort of outgrow our parents i think as well as loving them yeah, that's so fascinating. Perhaps one more element to throw in the mix in terms of your early intellectual influences, reasonably early. How influential was the Baha'i faith on your view, particularly your 
view of the sort of universal context of all these different religious traditions this this tremendous sort of positive sense in which they could all somehow be um brought together or at least um brought into some sort of peaceful peaceful dialogue or so well no thanks that's a nice question um so among the many other different things i've done i i've been quite actively involved in interfaith peace diplomacy after i landed in london sort of trying to save the world through interfaith peace studies and set up my institute i was asked to become secretary general of a thing called the world conference on religion and peace it's now called religions for peace it had a rebrand but in my day it was called world conference on religion and peace and i served as secretary general of this thing for nearly 10 years which took me to loads of interfaith peace conferences um, the most important was in Rome and uh, Italy in 1994, um, but I was also in ones in, in Vienna and Venice and all that stuff. And I kept meeting Baha'is at these events. They were always there. Our national committee, which used to meet in, um, in London, we often would meet in Rutland Gate, which is the headquarters of the Baha'i Centre in, in Britain, in London. And they were lovely people. I met the director of the Baha'is in Britain. Um, and I, you know, I researched them. I was lecturing at the University of London by then, and I did some lectures on the Baha'is. So I obviously read up a lot on that. And I discovered they're an offshoot of 19th century Shia Sufi spirituality in, in, in Iran. You can't understand them unless you understand their origin. Baha'u'llah coming out of that, that lineage, if you want searching for the bab the gate who will take us to god um you know they're the radical wing of the sufi tradition that says god hasn't gone away he's still with us he's 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 trying to break through all the time you know um i i met some personal friends who are baha'is and used to go to their fireside chats um and i've always loved their universality their commitment to peace their their strength um, their, their emphasis on equality for women, which is something that not all Muslims get, in, certainly in the Sunni tradition. Um, and they're very uh, proud, noble people. I've also been to several of their centers, like the one in Delhi, particularly the Lotus Temple, which is a to die to, to, to die for place. And I know some of the leading Baha'is in India at the moment. I've just come back from some interfaith conferences there. Um, so yeah i mean <clears throat> i think i would say that i'd already been doing all the work and then i met them um you know um and i feel they're parallel you know uh path walkers to what i'm doing um i think they've been unfairly persecuted by by the the shia traditions inside iran which is very sad um I, one of the things I've tried to set up is a, is a thing to reconcile the different schools of Islam. I set up a commission to reconcile Shia and Sunni parts because this underlies the conflict in Yemen. It underlies the conflict in Syria. I think it's ridiculous. Shia and Sunni should should make peace. It's been it's now rearing its head in Afghanistan, um, and that's why I took ten years out of my life to do a commentary on the Quran which I read in Canada, but then, you know, um, the whole Middle East has been a battlefield for, for far too long and all the schools of Islam. And I think if you go back to the Quran itself and read through every word as I've done and interpret it properly, 
um, it's actually a peace document. It's not a manual for terrorism at all. Um, the Quran is an incredible peace document, and I really enjoyed recording a commentary. It's on my Green University website, going into every verse, every surah, every word of, of the Quran. Um, it's an English commentary, but I've used the Arabic where appropriate, going into the Arabic words. And I've done a lot of work on the background to Muhammad's own spiritual journey, how he got this Quran, and what were the influences on him. You know, imagine you were doing an, an interview with Muhammad. And you said, well, what was your, you know, where did you go to school, Muhammad? I've done that research. I've interviewed him spiritually, as it were. And um, I give all that away in my commentary on the Quran, which I, I, you know, it should be listened to by, you know, all the Muslims on the planet. They would totally transform what they're doing into a peace um, <clears throat> project. And during last Ramadan, I did the whole Ramadan thing whilst I was recording it as well, because... Um, and one of the things I'd like to come out of my commentary in the Quran is, is a peace treaty between the Baha'is and all the different schools of Muslims. You know, nobody has a monopoly on absolute truth. We all have to somehow surrender our ego to the absolute. That's what Islam actually means. It means surrender of the ego, the me, I'm the best, me, 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 my religion, to the absolute, which is like the in, infinite sea, you know. We don't own the sea um, and we should all like surrender to that infinite sea or desert to use the sand metaphor um, and that's that's the path to peace I think that was Muhammad's great insight anyway and I think the Baha'is have the same insight yeah I was thinking about your your vast output and uh, it really is incredible what what you've done not only what you've learned but actually what you've then done with it um, continue to explore and reinvent uh, yourself in, in, and pursue different intellectual interests and start different huge projects throughout mm -hmm. your life. I'm very curious about your, your daily routine and work ethic. How, how is it that you're able to get so much done and throughout your life? You're 65 now, is that right? Mm -hmm. And you haven't stopped really throughout your life. And no, I, no. Yeah. And I'm wondering, mm. how, how have you not only managed to work so hard, but for it to have been very effective, which are not, once again, the same thing. So those mm. are two things, creativity and uh, mm. uh, continuous exploration. How, do you, how have you sustained that? And number two, what about mm. the actual the, the, the nuts and bolts of work ethic? Right. Well, th thanks. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember once um, Francis Young Husband, who led the British team into Tibet, was speaking to a Lama when he was in Lhasa. It was the first time the British ever got to Tibet. And in his autobiography, he set up a thing called the World Congress of Faiths when he came back, which I sat on the board of for some, for some time when I was active in interfaith work. And young husband writes in his autobiography, he said, talking to this Lama, I felt like I was looking at, at the foot, at the Himalayas stretching away all before me. And hitherto, I'd only ever seen the Sussex Downs. In the Anglican tradition he'd been brought up, he realized it was like the Sussex Downs, very sweet and lovely, but like now he was talking to the Himalayan masters. And so I've always felt that um, life is like a constant series of false peaks, whether it's the South Downs or the Himalayas. You, you think you're getting to the top of something. And when you get there, you realize it's just the foothills of the next peak, you know. Um, and I think that's what makes life so amazing. It's a series of adventures. 
um, I mean, for instance, when I was like, I think I was what, 19, resigned from university to walk to Stonehenge, I was reading a book about pagan Celtic Britain by Anne Ross and got very much into the Druids and all that. I didn't know later, many years later, you know, 40 years later, I'd write the first ever encyclopedia of Druid studies. I didn't know it'd be me that had to spend a year writing a thousand page encyclopedia going into the Druids throughout the whole of Europe. I mean, there are plenty of Druids around the UK, but they all sort of think Druidry stops at, at Dover, you know. No, it's alive and well in Europe. In fact, it ran Gaul, Austria, Switzerland. They're all Druid strongholds and they've found, archeologists have found all kinds of stuff that they're still discovering. Places like Paris, Strasbourg, Chartres, they were all Druid foundations with temples and stuff. Why? So anyway, I took on the job of writing the encyclopedia, which puts all that down. Um, why? Well, you know, because it's there. Why climb the mountain? Because it's there. I do things if I see nobody else has done them. I don't want an easy life. There's no point just trotting out the same old stuff. You know, um, I, I discovered quite early on, actually, when I was at Brighton College, um, I remember going as a child, um, my brother was there before me, he was, a, and there was a sports day for, for relatives to come, so the little toddlers would go, and we had to do a running race, and this green track on Brighton College was newly painted with the white lines, and we all set off, and I thought you had to stay in your line, I didn't, I didn't realize you could leave the line and overtake the guy in front of you. So I kind of ran a feeble race because I was stuck, boxed in by these people in front of me. Nobody had told me you can leave the line and overtake. Right? And that to me is a metaphor of too many intellectuals. They're boxed into their little lines. They never leave the line they're doing. It's a comfortable little job, sort of nice little middle-class income. And I'm not interested in that. I, I'm, a, I'm a tracker. I'll go ahead of the pack. I'll zigzag in an unorthodox way and find new stuff out, you know. Um, that's what makes life worth living. And so the most, for example, the project I've been working on in the last year, among others, perhaps the most intellectually challenging I took on was to invent a whole new field of mathematics. I discovered in my research over the years, Newton's Principia Mathematica, ends with a final little confession by the author. Um, he says, uh, okay, folks, thanks for reading so far. Um, hope you enjoyed the book. And if you've read carefully, you'll see I've explained the mathematics of the heavenly bodies. I've explained the maths of gravity, but I haven't once explained what it is or how it, how it arises. And I think that has something to do with God. And that's where the book ends, right? And this book was like a bestseller. It set up the Enlightenment. Everyone read Newton and, you know. So I, I came along and I've, in, I've done a sequel called Principia, uh, sorry, Philosophiae Religionis Principia Mathematica. So the philosophical principles of religious mathematics. And I've coined a whole new discipline called religious maths. And the reason I've done it is because <clears throat> I was really annoyed by very bright boys coming to my religious studies classes at schools where I've taught as head of religious studies. I'd had very bright boys doing A-levels in maths and physics coming and saying, oh, your subject's pathetic. It doesn't, it's not important. I don't believe in God. I only believe in mathematics and science and things I can prove. 
And I had this argument with these very bright kids who went on to do math degrees and blah, blah, and went on to invent computer code and things. And so I said, no, that's, that's very arrogant of you. Um, and I invented the periodic table of the religious and philosophical traditions, which is like Mendeleev's table. It's a chart. And then I use that as the basis for my book on the principles of religious maths. I argue that actually religious maths is incredibly important and sophisticated because it's, it's the overlapping Zen, uh, Venn diagram between all religious studies and all mathematical knowledge. You know, and if you overlap them, you get religious mathematics. So I had such fun writing the three volumes of that book over the last year and just inventing stuff that nobody's even asked questions about before, like about relativity and gravity and, you know, questions mathematically, like how many gods are there? How many souls do we have? How many incarnations do we get? How many incarnations do we have to do before we get to enlightenment? Can you rank people's enlightenments mathematically, comparatively across systems? Um, you know, how many religious texts are there? Um, how, many, how many planets in the universe have got souls having incarnations on how many enlightened sages are there on all those planets you know these are all mathematical questions which i've enunciated i think for the first time in the history of this planet i don't think anyone's had the nerve <laughs> so that was fun um and why well i think it's i think it's important because you know mathematics has run away with the baby it's like it thinks it's won the argument against the humanities and against theology you know, and, and professors of maths, they all trot out their relativity theory and big bang and final proof and think they've explained reality. They've explained nothing at all. As Newton said, there's no why or how in their explanations. There's just a sort of nice equation. So I'm calling their bluff and, and I'm fighting back on behalf of theologians and religious thinkers and saying, look guys, you know, you're now at the bottom of a whole new Himalayan range called religious maths. And I, I do it because I think it's important, you know. Um, as I said before, it's a medical thing for me. This, this philosophical work I'm doing is like a concerted medical attempt to heal conflicts between the religions. So when some guys are blown up in Kabul or in Jerusalem or when Gaza's getting bombed yet again or, you know, people are fighting on the streets of Belfast, I'm trying to explain mathematically why that needn't be happening. It's fascinating. And that's as yet unpublished, I assume, if you've been No, no, I've published the three volumes. I have I missed, published the I three volumes. Um, the, the fourth one is still being written. I'm taking time out to do an easier project. But the fourth and final volume will be written by the end of next year, I think. Oh, fabulous. Well, and what about the work ethic? What about your, ah. do, you ha do you have a kind of daily routine? I mean, how, how have you sustained this sort of, this uh, work rate o over such a lifetime? Well, I mean, I am a very disciplined person. You know, I was, I was a, a university lecturer for 10 years and then I was a school teacher for 10 years. And I, you have to work damn hard as a teacher. Um, I mean, I'm having a doddle now because I'm, I'm doing all the work I used to do as a teacher, but I don't have a thousand kids every week to teach. They're not coming into my classes. So I've sort of, this is a doddle for me. Um, I'm, I'm keeping up the same rate as if I was a full-time teacher, but, but I'm teaching selectively who I want to on Zoom, organizing classes at a distance, giving the odd course. 
and and I have taught classes here in France. You know, I, I do the odd adult education stuff. Um, I just love learning. I, I mean, the secret to my work ethic is, is not, I don't do work. I do what's called W-Y-R-K, which is the old Anglo-Saxon spelling, wirk. That's how they used to spell it. And it's related to the word wirt, W-I-R-D. This goes back to the runes. Um, and it meant destiny or fate. Weird meant karma, destiny or fate. And, you know, so our destiny is to, is to do whatever we can as best we can. That's why we're an incarnation, I think. And my work is to bring this knowledge about interfaith spiritual unity to the attention of, of everybody, actually, you know. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm doing a concerted body of work. What I'm not very good at marketing and publicity and I don't go on book tours, you know, and, and all that stuff. I'm much more interested in doing the work. Um, and I, I regard it as like, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm laying down a body of work that will last for the next thousand years. It's going to take about a thousand years for enough people to read it and realize what I've done. And I'm not looking for the accolades now, you know. And what Aquinas did um, a thousand years ago was he reconciled pagan and Christian thought, you know, in a grand synthesis, Aristotelian and Christian particularly. And, and um, you know, self-consciously, I'm trying to do the same, but in a much bigger scale now, laying down a synthesis for these traditions that will endure for a thousand years, you know. Um, and the reason is for peace, because um, if I can prove, as I've done, that all the traditions of, of the periodic table are all interconnected, and there is there therefore shouldn't be a rivalry to the death between them, um, then I've done my work, you know. And I don't even need to be heard of. I don't care. My name isn't important. It's the work itself that matters, as Gurdjieff said, you know. Well, Thomas, we are out of time. But this has been such a fascinating conversation. I would love to do a sequel, actually. And some of the, some of the themes there, I think, just to 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 wet the uh, to give a little cliffhanger there, or attempt to tempt the listener or viewer, is you you've done a, a lot of interesting work on the comparative epistemology of different Enlightenment experiences. I think that's that's a fascinating work. I'd also really like to ask you about the Book of Enoch, um, <laughs> and one of the many threads from there into John Dee. And you've done seminars on John Dee and, and a lot of work there. I'm all, I'd also like to, if we have time, ask you about your comparative diabology or diabology, ah. which is very yes. interesting indeed. <clears throat> my, my studies of the devil in different religions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was a whole new thing that nobody thought of. Which... <laughs> yeah, I did yeah. some lectures at Oxford. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Those are all big, big projects. Yeah, that's, um, that'd be fantastic, yeah. Yeah. Great, well, in, in the meantime, Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com. <laughs>